Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible handy, there are generally some on the end of the pew there, and you're welcome to borrow one of those to turn to 1 Samuel. It's the ninth book in the Bible, and we, uh, we'll, we'll take a moment uh, next week to diverge from our 1 Samuel series that we've been going through for Easter Sunday, but I, I found it intriguing in the Lord's uh, providence, I guess, as I uh, looked at the passage for this week and recognizing, of course, today is Palm Sunday, the amount of correspondence, and really that's what we're going to focus in on our sermon time, between the events in 1 Samuel 9 and the events in a couple of chapters afterwards with Saul and the coming of King Saul and the establishment of the Old Testament kingship with the work of Christ coming into Jerusalem, uh, elevated at least for that moment and recognized as a, a king uh, before uh, events would turn to a different direction on that uh, wonderful week for our salvation. Uh, we uh, turn and look at chapter 9 in, in following up last week on our chapter 8. We saw last week in chapter 8 that the people had this tendency, uh, much as the people on, on that triumphal entry day cried out, Hosanna, the people were looking for a king in 1 Samuel 8, but they were looking for a king for all the wrong reasons. And they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted his power, and they kind of wanted to break free from God's uh, kingship. We saw in 1 Samuel 8 last week that we looked at. And we were reminded of our tendency to do the same thing, to look for our security and hope in, in our government or in whatever, in other things besides the Lord and how dangerous that is for us. And then we uh, saw at the same time that God's got this interesting way of working, that he, uh, he kind of delights to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That even though the people's motivation was misdirected and misguided and wanting this king, that in fact God was going to use that for his purposes in that time. And right up through the time of the triumphal entry with Jesus coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and up into our lives today as Jesus reigns over us in that way. We saw that uh, God is still in control in that way. Even when things look to us like they're going awry. And that's not an excuse for us to walk in unfaithfulness or not walk in step with him. But it's just a reality. God's sovereign even over our sin. And we can be thankful for that. And and then we saw, too, with the king that the issue with the king wasn't that it was bad in itself. The king was just bad by itself. The idea was that uh, whatever uh, form or system of government the people of God had, that they would be looking to God as their Savior. And, of course, we see that Christ comes as the fulfillment of all of that in a rather unexpected way as the weeks of or the days of Holy Week play out. And he ends up with not a crown of gold upon his head, but a, a crown of thorns. And not with marvelous robes of glory, but robes fashioned by his torturers for his mockery. And so we see all of that as we lead into 1 Samuel 
chapter 9 and this idea of the kingship. And we're going to look at a a few verses. We're not going to read all of the chapter. We'll start with verse uh, 15 in 1 Samuel 9. And then we're going to read the the passage of, of Palm Sunday of the triumphal entry and meditate on that a bit as well. And I think we're going to see some surprising contrasts and similarities between what's happening with Saul and between what's happening with Christ. And hopefully it'll help us to see a better picture of who Christ is in our lives and to be all the more thankful for his deep, deep love. So as we uh, read these verses, starting in verse 15 in 1 Samuel, I'll summarize for you the first 15 verses. That is, we learn that there's this person, Saul. He is from the tribe, uh, the family of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. He's tall. He's handsome. We learn that he is wandering around now with a servant along with him looking for some donkeys that his father has lost. And that is all that he knows, really, that is happening. But he's told that someone can help him out, this prophet, this person, Samuel. And in verse 15, we begin to see their interaction together. So read along silently as I read aloud. First Samuel uh, chapter nine, starting in verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I will let you go out and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite and from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into a hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel and and Samuel said, see what has what was kept is set before you eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they had come, came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell your servant to pass on before us, that when he has passed on, Stop here yourself for a while, 
that I may make known to you the word of God. And then turn with me over to John chapter 12. Starting in verse 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him then when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray together again. Oh, Father, we ask that you would minister to us now through your word. And Lord, uh, show us in the contrast and in the similarities between these two kings, these two callings, these two entries, these two anointings, the uh, beauty of who Christ is. Of what he has done for us and elevate in our thoughts, our understanding, our desires, the things of Christ that we might know him more and walk more with him in his grace and in his glory. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, sometime near the end of last year, the third of the Hobbit movies Uh, finally hit the theater, completing that extended series over a number of years in that uh, remarkable book, whether you've read the story or seen the movies or just know generally about it. Of course, we know that uh, The Hobbit, although a powerful story in its own right, is really just a precursor to all of what we saw, if you were into it years ago, with the Lord of the Rings series. All that what took place in Middle Earth and those monumental events of uh, good and evil conflicting there is really just the beginning in the book, in the story, The Hobbit. So as we watch or read uh, Bilbo and uh, the younger uh, Gandalf and the dwarves that are traveling with them and even catch a glimpse of evil in Gollum, Uh, We are learning important things in the book of The Hobbit, but things that ultimately point ahead to much grander and much more global truths that play out in the Lord of the Rings three movies, three books. We see those things playing out with Frodo and Aragorn and the Ring Race and Saruman and all of those figures later. Well, it's a similar thing in a general way as we read through the Old Testament 
scriptures and especially as we focus on this reality of the the kingship the old testament monarchy we're we're learning things from the specific passage itself and there's truth to be understood in first samuel as we read it but ultimately all of this and and particularly the chapter we look at Last week, this week, and next week are are, are zooming in on this idea of the kingship. And as they zoom in, they're pointing forward to the reality of God's kingship fulfilled in Christ. And so as we look at it today and we think about what 1 Samuel teaches us, in fact, we're going to be learning about the things of Christ. And and it, it is particularly easy to see today when we look at all the contrasts that are here and then a couple of similarities. And, and ultimately, we're going to be keeping in mind, hopefully, that just like we saw in 1 Samuel 8, and just like we see on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry, that we've got this, this horrible tendency to, on the one hand, exalt and praise and rejoice in who Christ is, and then on a dime to turn and at the very least ignore him and at the worst to despise and betray him. And that the Old Testament people were doing that same thing, just like the people at the triumphal entry did as that Passion Week played out. And just like you and I do as we go throughout our weeks and throughout our days. So as we look at these contrasts, What I want us to see is not only the way that 1 Samuel 9 is pointing forward to Christ, but ultimately how it it lifts up in our vision, in our sight, who Christ is. That we might worship Him and know Him more intimately as our life, as our hope. So let's walk through some of these contrasts that we see. uh, Some which will seem uh, significant, and I think we'll all agree, and others that maybe seem to be just in passing, but all of which are sort of fascinating when you look at them. The first thing we see is that we know that Christ comes from this perfectly, perfect heavenly lineage. And Saul's got a rather different story. On the first hand, when we read in verse 16 or so it was today, I guess verse 21, I'm sorry, where Saul is told that all this stuff about Israel, all the glory of Israel is going to be sort of located in him. He knows something of what Samuel's talking about, even though they've just met. He knows somehow he's going to be elevated. And his immediate response is, oh, I'm from this tribe of Benjamin. And I'm from this not so glorious family within that group. Now, to us at first, and this may indeed be part of it, it may sound like the athletes at the end of some successful game, right? We're probably some in this group watching a few NCAA tournament basketball games right now. And if some player has a ridiculous number of points and ridiculous number of rebounds and plays awesome defense and so forth, they pull them to the side at the end and the little interview person holds up the microphone in their face. And what do they usually say? If they want to be reasonably well liked by their fan base, they say, I just did it for the team and I just did it for the fans. And I really want to mention my coach and how great my coach is, even though the whole point of the microphone's in his face is because we know you played an awesome game and we're interested in you. There might be a little bit of that going on with Saul as he sort of deflects this. But there's also some truth in it 
We don't have time to look back to Judges chapter 19 and 21, but we did a sermon series uh, not too many months ago through that. And you'll remember the turmoil. You'll remember that the tribe of Benjamin is not the most faithful tribes. They kind of turn their back on their brothers. And then this uh, family of Kish comes from some disturbing events that take place. So all that to say, uh, Saul doesn't have a lot of lineage to commend to him. And of course, we know that Christ on the human side of his lineage has got the same thing. But we know Christ in his perfection, in his glory, comes from heaven. He comes from that perfect background. And Saul does not. And it's a reminder to us of the glories of who Christ is. Second thing we see there, and maybe there's not too much to be drawn about this, but isn't it interesting that both of the chapters, there's a focus on some donkeys, right? It's kind of an odd thing. If you are reading the Bible for the first time and maybe had never heard of the story of the triumphal entry, it's just peculiar, this emphasis on him riding on a donkey. And yet it's the fulfillment we know of this Old Testament theme of a king who comes, but who comes in humility, a king who is leader and ready to receive that recognition, but also recognizes that he's not the top dog, that God is ultimately the top dog. Maybe this application would be a better one for us to draw from it. There certainly does seem to be some hint, and we skip the verses for sake of time with Saul wandering around looking for these donkeys. But there certainly does seem to be some hint here that Saul, who is supposed to lead God's people, shepherd God's people, rule over them, take care of them, can't even seem to locate these donkeys that he's been sent out to find for his father to gather them in. And in contrast, we know from scriptures, of course, that Jesus is that perfect shepherd that shepherds his people perfectly Christ, we see as well, comes into this, uh, this holy city, this city of Jerusalem, that's recognized as this special place because of the presence of God. Uh, Saul is wandering into this other city without really even knowing where he is and looking for the presence of this holy one. It's a reminder to us that when Jesus comes in, it's part of this fulfillment of the heavenly reality. The book of Hebrews tells us that this, this city of Jerusalem is sort of a reflection of divine, uh, divine kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. That city of Jerusalem is a picture of what's coming in the future. So both of them are going to these holy places, but with different purposes. And then we get into the meat of it, perhaps uh, things that will perhaps mean a little bit more to us. Christ, we see, uh, is celebrated and then rejected, but because of his righteousness. Saul, we're going to see, and we have to kind of zoom ahead in our minds. It's not in the passage today, but it's in the chapters to follow. Saul is going to be celebrated. We see them preparing a feast for him at this time. We see there's a special you know, welcome for him in that sense. And yet very soon he's going to be rejected, really rejected by God because of his unrighteousness. And it just highlights for us, it it puts in contrast for us the beauty of Jesus and what he does for us. Brandon earlier was sharing in our worship service time at our call to confession about the privilege of being adopted into God's family. And about how that only comes because of the fact that we receive justification. 
that righteousness that's credited to us, that's given to us, that's a gift to us. Jesus is this righteous king. We see that uh, for Jesus, he's rejected because the people are fickle. For Saul, he's rejected because he is fickle. Jesus remains faithful for you and I. That's part of why he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We see as well uh, as we recognize the larger scope of scripture that as Jesus comes into this triumphal entry, he's not tall and he's not handsome. Scriptures tell us elsewhere that there was no beauty. There was no majesty to his person that would attract us to him, to his appearance, I should say. That would attract us to him. Saul was quite different. People were interested in him as leader because of his physical stature and apparently because of his appearance. We see how fleeting that is for Saul, but we can forget it in our own lives today as well. Think, think for a moment about that conversation, uh, maybe husbands and wives here, or maybe some of the young people uh, dating here that you, you have when you're watching you know, your favorite movie, your favorite TV show, and, and, and the wife leans over and says, you think that, think that lady's attractive? You think that actress is pretty? That's a tough one, right? Guys, how do, how do we feel that question? You're, you're up against the wall there figuring, figuring that one out, you know? Sometimes I try to do the, hey, she's not unattractive. That's a good way to state it in the negative. Sort of back your way out of that question and acknowledge the beauty of my my bride. You know, it's a a strange double standard that we have on that one, by the way, because, you know, if your bride wants to watch one with Brad Pitt in or Harrison Ford or whatever, it's perfectly fine. But guys, if we say we want to watch a movie because so-and-so's in it, man, we're going down a bad going down a bad path, but we, we, we value that, and, and, and that appearance is significant, and so it's always interesting, isn't it, when you see an actor or actress, and, and there really doesn't seem to be anything particularly appealing about their appearance, and there's just something about their presence, about how they act or how they speak or whatever that commends them and we latch on to. So we see this with Christ and with Saul, this contrast, we're reminded that the the things about Jesus that are beautiful is is who he is in his character and what he does for us. And that we're so prone to desire other things in the business world for the person who looks successful and appears like they've got things under control. Interesting. uh, I don't know how many of you all here have read the book, A Good to Great, but I read it years ago, just a secular book about business. But uh, the author does this fascinating study of seven different businesses, two sets of seven different businesses, similar businesses, and how at the same time they had similar opportunities and similar financial resources and similar business things. and, and, And yet at the same time, over that subsequent years, one of them jumped forward in the industry and one of them lagged behind. And what happened? And it's fascinating to find that one of the things that happened with the businesses that succeeded and jumped ahead, even though the other company was at a similar opportunity and similar time, was those businesses that jumped ahead chose a leader who was often from within their organization already, who was a humble person, 
and who maybe wasn't recognized for being all that dynamic, whereas some of the other companies tried to find the jet setter, the, the fantastic, the, the, the zinger, the one that's going to come in and really going to take us forward, and they'd go and search high and low to find that person, and it'd ultimately be a letdown. We're prone to look for those external things and not see the interior things. Young people here who are uh, perhaps in the dating phase of life and uh, looking for a, a mate or somebody to, uh, to, uh, to get uh, and develop a relationship with. So easy for us. You know, anybody can put on a show for a few hours in a, in a date, right? Or even over a series of months in a series of dates. But, but how important for us to look at, at the character, at, at who that person really is inside. We're doing it in our culture as well. Uh, we love to do it with folks in my role, right? And whether, you know, heaven forbid, you look at, at me as a person who kind of hung the moon in ministry and pastoral uh, gifts and so forth, but we seek that out. We say, well, oh, I need to have that person that's got that certain polish or style or appearance, and we're so easy to dismiss those issues that should be central of character and godliness and righteousness, right? So this is contrasted dramatically when we see Saul over the next couple of chapters turning out to be not much of a king at all and not much of a godly man at all. Contrast is dramatic. Christ, we see, is also moving towards his highest self-sacrificing act as the ultimate and obedient king. Saul turns out to be quite insecure and he's quickly disobeying God as a self-serving king. Interestingly, Christ makes us special guests at a feast that only he can provide. He's coming into Jerusalem, and four days later, he's going to gather his disciples together, and he's going to bless them with uh, spiritual food, you might say, remind them of feeding upon him. And yet uh, Saul, we see, is gathered at this meal where he's kind of this special guest, given this special leg of meat. I guess that was a significant thing. They set it aside for him. Jesus will provide for us a meal that only he can provide. And then lastly, and we'll look at a couple of similarities and then be done for our time in, in God's word today. We see this, which is interesting. You know, in uh, that John passage we read just a few minutes ago, it's interesting that it ends with the Pharisees. It says that people who saw Jesus do the raising of Lazarus were bearing witness. They were saying, hey, this is the guy. So not only do you have all these crowds gathered together and celebrating him, but people are saying, let me tell you. Let me tell you his best thing that he did. I saw this thing do. They actually raised a guy from the dead. I've heard about the healings. I've heard about the other works that he's done. And, and, and the only thing that the Pharisees can say is, man, we don't like that he's taken things in a different direction than we want them to go. And I just thought it was fascinating because you remember back in 1 Samuel 8 that we saw last week? Was Samuel in favor of the whole king thing? No. He thought it was a bad idea. He told God that. He told the people that. And yet, he, he finds a way to get himself lined up with what God's doing, even if that's not what he thinks should be happening. And the Pharisees, it just gives us a new light on them. We know from studying the New Testament that the Pharisees are off track about grace and they don't get that. And they're, you know, they don't want to lose their position of power, certainly. But it seems like there's a whole other thing going on here with the Pharisees that they just 
can't really get into and recognize that God's in control and not them. It's that old adage, right? There is a God and you're not him. That's what they're struggling to get, that most foundational thing. And yet they're supposed to be the leaders of God's people. And we see these contrasts. Let's look for just a moment at the powerful similarities and then we'll close our time. The first thing we see is that Christ does save his people. The thing that they're crying out, that's what Hosanna means, is save us. And it can either be, a, you know, we're glad you're saving us or please save us. We need rescue. It can kind of be used alternatively that that way. But that thing that they're crying out. And you know what? Let's give Saul his credit. He does a little bit of that. He goes out and he fights and, and, and however successful he is at that or not, and however successful or not any of the other Old Testament kings are, all of those kings, when they go fight for the people of God, it's a picture for you and me of how Jesus goes out and fights for you and I. That's what Easter week is, is in a sense about. He's fighting the fight that that we need fought on our behalf, that we can't fight and we can't win. And he uses the weapons, not of this world, but he uses the weapon of his own life, his own death, his own blood offered on our behalf. So Christ is saving his people. Christ is also lovingly restraining his people. Boy, this is kind of the odd part of this passage. Look back there at verse 17 real quick. Verse 17. It says, when Samuel saw Saul, it's hard to say, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's a man of whom I spoke to you. So this is the dude. And then it's got this sentence that the translation, I don't know what they were trying to do here, but boy, it is challenging to read. He, it is, who shall restrain my people. Okay, now that's a weird kind of sentence, but it's also a weird idea. What is that talking about? Well, remember last week we looked at this idea how if you trust in sort of worldly, earthly government as your highest hope, that's not going to be a good way to go. We recognize that. This is also reminding us of the reverse. You remember at the end of Judges, there was a huge problem. And that was that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. There was nothing to direct them how to live or how to be. And these verses remind us as the people of God that it's not something we should sort of uh, try to shuck or get rid of Jesus's kingship. He's coming into Jerusalem as a king. We shouldn't try to buck that or get rid of it. We ought to welcome it. That we have somebody that will help to restrain us. That's a good thing. It sounds like a bad thing when we read it there. But for the people of God, it was a good thing to have a king that did that. It's good for you and me, too. We need that. That we might live lives that are glorifying to God and that are for our good. Last thing we see is that Christ responds to this call to kingly leadership. You know, again, you got to we got to remember Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we know that he's wrestling in the garden later on in the Passion Week with what he's got to do. But he knows when he goes to Jerusalem. Scriptures say elsewhere that he, he steeled himself. He set his sights on Jerusalem. You realize what that is? He's going to the, to the death penalty. He knows where the executioner is. He knows where the lethal ejection is going to take place. What would you and I do? Go every place other than that. 
do not go to Jerusalem because that's where it's going to play out. He goes straight into it. He responds to the call. And you know what? Saul doesn't respond perfectly, but he responds as well. And we see that picture of the king as one who is ready to do what he is called to do for God's people. And how wonderfully we see that manifested in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the parallels and the contrasts in these two parts of your redemptive work. This Old Testament kingship and the time of Saul and the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know the latter is uh, of paramount importance of the highest uh, necessity and of the greatest beauty for us to meditate on. But we thank you for the privilege of being able to see those things that Christ does in um, relief upon the things of 1 Samuel. And to see those things highlighted and jump off the page to us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not uh, run away from your call, but responded to it. And in that, Lord Jesus, we have great blessing that we enjoy in this life and into eternity. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.